Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic and a very blessed solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, to you. This is a great solemnity and one that I love celebrating for a whole number of reasons. I mean, the foremost of which is probably that I love these instances in which we have a secular holiday in the United States. We have a federal holiday uh, on which we get the opportunity to celebrate a more important solemnity on top of that. So, you know, congratulations, everybody. We're in a new calendar year. But what's really cool is that we can celebrate the eighth day of the octave of Christmas, January 1st, and recognize Mary as the mother of God. Now, I also think, though, that Protestants, um, while certainly most Protestants, I know at least, recognize Mary as the mother of God and certainly accept that uh, as as her title. In fact, it's really normally um, the only one of the uh, the four Marian uh, dogmas that they will accept. Um, while that's true, I think a lot of Protestants still think, still look at this solemnity and think, why do you have a solemnity for Mary? You already have these other ones. You have the Annunciation. You have the Immaculate Conception. Why do you need this solemnity for Mary, Mother of God, as well? And it's probably a fair question, um, but I think it has a really good answer, and that's what I want to talk about today. The reason we have a solemnity for Mary, Mother of God, the reason why we talk about this definition, this title of Mary as the Theotokos so much, is because of what it says from a Christological standpoint about who Jesus is and how Jesus himself unites two natures in one person. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. To do that, we have to go back to the early church and understand the uh, the heresies that were abounding in the early church. Most of us are well aware that the early centuries of the church especially had very specific and pronounced heresies that had to be stamped out by the wider church. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, for example, spent a lot of time fighting against the Donatists who emphasized that ministers of sacraments had to be absolutely worthy for those sacraments to be valid. And also held, for example, that uh, rebaptism was sometimes necessary, especially if the first baptism didn't take because of the unworthiness of the minister. That is a heresy. We've probably all heard about Arius, who held that Jesus was a creature, not divine and co-equal with God the Father, but simply a, a creature. So he very clearly rejected the divinity of Jesus Christ. That was another major one. There was also docetism, which was basically a Gnostic uh, heresy that held that Jesus was just a, a phantasm, uh, was not really real, and and that mattered because then any suffering that Jesus experienced wouldn't actually have been real suffering that uh, that that God actually experienced. So those are some of the heresies. But then along came this man named Nestorius, and Nestorius was appointed the Archbishop or the Patriarch of Constantinople in 428 by Emperor Theodosius II. And Nestorius came up with this idea that Mary was not actually the mother of God. He rejected the title of Theotokos for Mary. And Theotokos is from, is from two, the concatenation of two Greek words, Theo obviously meaning God, and then Atokos, which has to do with um, childbirth or childbearing. So most literally, Theotokos really translates to the God-bearer, but in English it's normally translated to the mother of God. But Nestorius rejected that title for Mary. And he did it for what he saw, obviously, as an important reason, but but a very wrong-headed reason. Nestorius said, there's this divine person, and he called it a prosopon, and that's Jesus. Now, Jesus has a divine nature, so the divine person has a divine nature. But then Nestorius said, there's this other person, the human person, that's Jesus also, or he called him Christ, 
who has a human nature. So there's a divine person with a divine nature, that's the prosopon, and there's a human person in a human nature, and that is Christ. So he was willing to grant that Mary was the mother of Christ, and in fact, he advocated for this title uh, of Christotokos, uh, which is Christ-bearer, but he rejected God-bearer because in Nestorius' view, the divine person comes into the world and basically sort of inhabits the human person, right? There's no unity of uh, of two natures into one person. This would later be called the hypostatic union as the church, uh, as, as the church clarified and understood uh, the natures of Jesus being united into one person. But, but Nestorius said, Mary gives birth to this, this human person, the Christ. So again, she's the Christokos, not the Theotokos. And his logic was that God can't be born of a creature. So he recognized, as the church obviously does and always has, that Mary was certainly a creature. Mary is not divine. But he said, because of that, I can't square this circle. And Jesus, the, the divine person of Jesus, could not have been born of a creature. So rather, we have to have this view that has the divine person uh, with a divine nature coming in and sort of inhabiting a human person or a, uh, a human person and a human nature. So the problem with this view, I mean, there are several problems, but the most significant and the reason why this is, this was such a big deal to the early church is that this raises a very substantial question. Specifically, how can Jesus be our redeemer if in the person of Jesus, we do not see the nature's fully man and fully God united, right? The whole reason why it was necessary for Jesus to become man, why God to become incarnate and to be born of the Virgin Mary, the whole reason was so that his divinity could take on our humanity. And then when the person of Jesus, the man Jesus, the person who is fully man and fully God, suffers for our sins, takes our sins to the cross with us and rises again, it is God himself who is righting that wrong. It is God himself who is suffering. It is God himself who is atoning for our sins. So under Nestorius's framework, that becomes a very difficult thing to recognize. And in fact, it can't happen because the unity, the hypostatic union is not there. Right? We can also think of what becomes of the Eucharist if, in fact, it is not the case that Jesus' divinity is fully united to his humanity. And I think, at best, the Eucharist then becomes something that makes us uh, simply eating Jesus' physical body and blood, Jesus the man, as opposed to Jesus who is fully man and fully God. So this is a very substantial problem, and Cyril of Alexandria, obviously now St. Cyril of Alexandria, recognized this as a very substantial problem. Cyril was a deacon. He was known for being rather pugilistic and hard-headed, which I think in some cases is very necessary. I think Athanasius was the same way. St. Jerome was the same way. Sometimes we need to be hard-headed against uh, heresies. But St. Cyril was certainly this way, and he engaged with Nestorius back and forth, sent several letters to Nestorius outlining why Nestorius was absolutely wrong on this. And he pointed out to Nestorius that, look, the church has always held, uh, and the church fathers are very clear on this, that Jesus unites his two natures into one person. It is true God who becomes true man. So it's true that this hypostatic union is not entirely comprehensible, but it's true nonetheless. St. Cyril said to Nestorius, this union is not merely according to the will, nor does it consist in the assumption of a prosopon only. And he said further that if we don't accept this truth of the hypostatic union, then we shatter the truth of our redemption. 
Why? Again, it's because God comes to us as fully man and fully God. He unites the natures of man and God into the one person of Jesus. That one person of Jesus ministers among us and offers his body and blood for us. That body and blood allows us to partake in the divine nature. And Jesus suffers on a cross and dies for us, thus atoning for the sins of the whole world. Why can he atone for the sins of the whole world? Because his sacrifice is of infinite value. And why is that? Because he, in fact, is God made man. So this is a really, really important idea. And when we celebrate Mary as the mother of God, what we're not doing is exclusively focusing on Mary, but the emphasis on that title is actually on the Theo part, right? On the mother of God part. It's the fact that Mary is the mother of God that is what we celebrate because the word of God became man. Now, another reason that Cyril was really unhappy with the stories about this is that it's not just that the church fathers are clear on this. It's not just that church councils were, uh, were clear on this and have been. The Council of Ephesus actually was convened in particular to comment Nestorius, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it's that the scriptures themselves are also clear on this. Just today, in fact, December 31st, as I'm recording this, uh, in in uh, Mass today, we read John 1.1, which is, um, and following, which is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Now, of course, John is the one gospel that's not synoptic. That is, it's, it doesn't tell stories in the same way that the other gospels do. There certainly are stories in John, um, but John's focus is more theological than synoptic. It's not an account for historians, although historians can use it. What he's what he's really doing is illustrating to us a deeper truth of the faith with some of these things, right? So compare it to Matthew. In the first few pages of Matthew, we, we get this really big genealogy that tells us exactly um, where Jesus came from. In the first few pages of John, instead we get this wonderful prologue telling us all about the incarnation. And it goes like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I'm going to skip down. That was verse 5. I'm going to skip down now to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. I'm starting from verse 16 now. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So this is very explicit on who Jesus is. Now, Nestorius might have read that, and thought, yes, it's clear that you know there is this divine aspect to, to Jesus that we can't overlook, but that doesn't mean that Mary is, in fact, the mother of Jesus. But the important, perhaps the most important part to counter Nestorius there is verse 14, that the word actually became flesh. The word didn't simply inhabit flesh. The word didn't simply occupy flesh. The word didn't simply displace flesh, but the word actually became flesh. That is the hypostatic union that uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria and later the Council of Ephesus um, would talk about so much. And we see we see other things here in the Gospels, especially, that illustrate this as well. It's, I think, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 23. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 7, in which Isaiah says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this virgin, who obviously is Mary, 
conceives a bear a son and bears a son. His name is Emmanuel. That name literally means that God has come to dwell among us. Um, look also at Luke. I think it's chapter one, verse 43. Let me turn to my Bible real quick and double check this. Luke chapter one, verse 43. Yes, this is when Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And when Mary does, she goes into the hill country of Judea, which itself echoes um, a passage in which the Ark of the Covenant goes into the hill country for a period of time. Um, but she goes into the hill country to visit Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth, when she when she sees Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And here the Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai, right? So there's clearly a divine implication here. And so Elizabeth appears to be, in fact, the first person in the Bible to give Mary a title. Obviously, she wasn't speaking Greek, uh, but to give Mary a title equivalent to uh, uh, the Theotokos, the mother of God. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So there's a very, very strong exegetical um, connection helping us understand that it is, in fact, God who becomes man in the person of Jesus. And that is why Mary becomes the mother of God. It's not simply because she gave birth to this person of Jesus, right? Even Nestorius didn't dispute that point. He said, of course, she gave birth to, I mean, he said Christ, right? She gave birth to the, to the human person and the human nature. But what she didn't do was give birth to God. Christian theology and the, the fathers of the church say, on the contrary, no, Mary, in fact, gave birth to God. Why? Not because Mary was, you know, a, a, uh, a creator herself and was able to create God. No, I mean, obviously not. That's completely absurd. But because God became man, fully became man, united divine and human natures into one person and was born of woman. Go back to Luke, in, in fact, in Luke chapter 1. I'll get the reference for you in just a moment. I'm looking this up now. Uh, but Luke chapter one, when Gabriel comes to Mary and gives his greeting, and this is again, this is why we celebrate the Annunciation, right? The Annunciation is about what God has done for us in the announcement of the incarnation. But in Luke chapter one, verse uh, 34, uh, sorry, 35, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So again, this is not about Jesus being born and then when he is three years old or 12 years old, or even just at the moment of his birth, the Holy Spirit inhabiting him or somehow infusing him or occupying his flesh with divinity. No, this is about the Holy Spirit actually coming upon Mary and God himself becoming incarnate within the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, fully uniting Jesus' as human and divine natures into the one person of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate the solemnity of the Mary of Mary the mother of God. It's not I mean we, and we it's not that we we don't venerate Mary. Of course we venerate Mary because Mary was chosen by God for this fantastic task, the greatest of all tasks ever given to uh, someone who to to one of us, to to one of us creatures. And so that alone is worthy of being celebrated. But the fact that Mary is the mother of God and the whole reason why she's the Theotokos is a fact about God and what God has done for us, and that's why we celebrate it. Now, going back to this, this Cyril versus Nestorius argument, so Cyril wrote to Nestorius several letters and said, you are dead wrong on this, buddy, and here's why. And then eventually, Cyril appealed to Pope Celestine, and um, Pope Celestine 
gave Cyril authority to, well, Pope Celestine convened a council, but gave Cyril authority to be his representative at the council. And that was the Council of Ephesus, which convened in June of 431, obviously in Ephesus. And they actually convened in the um, the Church of St. Mary, which is now in ruins, but um, Mary's church is believed to, uh, or Mary's house, rather, is believed to have been there. Um, and, uh, and it's amazing. I mean, 200 of these early Christian bishops from the fifth century convened and, and uh, had this council of Ephesus there. And it's just amazing to think about them all in this, in this little church, um, ha- hammering out these really important Christological doctrines uh, about things, but they did. And, um, Cyril had written, uh, several of his letters to Nestorius. And in one of them, he outlined 12 anathemas, which as you probably know from, for example, the anathemas of Trent are things that say, if you are to be a Christian, this is what you need to hold to. And uh, there are 12 of these in this, I think it's the second letter or maybe the third letter of St. Cyril to uh, Nestorius. And I'm just going to read a few of them so that you have uh, you have a good understanding of, of what is going on here. And I will say that the Council of Ephesus affirmed these anathemas. So they became then a part of the teaching authority of the council itself. So Cyril wrote these anathemas to Nestorius. When the Council of Ephesus convened, they confirmed and affirmed uh, Cyril is 12 anathema. So here are the first six. Cyril says, if anyone will not confess that the Emmanuel is very God and that therefore the Holy Virgin is the mother of God, inasmuch as in the flesh she bore the word of God made flesh, let him be anathema, right? So she is the mother of God inasmuch as the flesh that she bore bore the word of God, right? So she's not the mother of God and that she created God, obviously. She is the mother of God inasmuch as she bore Jesus in the flesh and in that flesh that she bore, uh, was the word of God, right? So the word of God was fully incarnate in the person of Jesus. The second anathema, if anyone shall not confess that the word of God, the father is united hypostatically to flesh and that with that flesh of his own, he is one only Christ, both God and man at the same time, let him be anathema. So that's the hypostatic union that um, that in the person of Jesus, Jesus is in fact, both God and man at the same time, fully God and fully man. Number three, if anyone shall, after the hypostatic union, divide the hypostases in the one Christ, joining them by that connection alone, which happens according to worthiness or even authority and power, and not rather by coming together, which is made by natural union, let him be anathema. So more, more there about the hypostatic union and the and the um, the reality of it, the metaphysical sort of reality of the hypostatic union. This is again not uh, not the sort of um, in, inhabitation of flesh by divinity, but rather a true coming together, a natural union. Number four, if anyone shall divide between two persons or subsistences these expressions which are contained in the evangelical and apostolical writings, or which have been said concerning Christ by the saints, or by himself, and shall apply some to him as to a man separate from the word of God, and shall apply others to the only word of God the Father, on the ground that they are fit to be applied to God, let him be anathema. In other words, everything that we say about Christ um, applies to Christ as fully God and fully man. Number five, if anyone shall dare to say that Christ is a Theophorus, that is a God-bearing man, and not rather that he is very God as an only son through nature because the word was made flesh and, quote, hath a share in flesh and blood as we do, let him be anathema. So this is going back to the idea of if everyone's, if anyone's saying that Christ was merely a sort of vessel that held within him divinity, let him be anathema. That is not what we hold about Jesus Christ. And then number six, again, there are 12 of these. I think the, the first six are, are especially salient. Number six, if anyone shall dare say that the word of God the Father is the God of Christ or the Lord of Christ and shall not rather confess him as at the same time both God and man, 
since according to the scriptures, the word was made flesh, let him be anathema. Um, and this, I think, is getting getting more at the sort of, uh, maybe sort of the Aryan uh, overtones um, or Aryan baggage uh, contained in some of these ideas, right? Uh, it, it is not that um, Christ the man is subservient to Jesus the God, uh, but rather that there is a true nature, uh, uh, or uh, sorry, not a true nature. There are two true natures, right? There's the um, the fully God nature, the fully divine nature, and the fully human nature, but they are both fully united in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so some really good stuff there from Cyril to Nestorius. Um, and I think it's really important for us as Christians, as Catholics, to reflect on the depth and the profundity of this title of Mary as the mother of God. And I've got a few quotes here from church fathers who can help us uh, unpack this a little bit. So um, they, they, I think, they understood, these these uh, fathers of the church understood the importance of this title, even before the Nestorius serial controversy. Most of these quotes are from, you know, a hundred years or more before that. But they understood why it's so important for Mary to be actually the mother of God, not simply the mother of Jesus who became God or the mother of Christ who was inhabited by God, but actually for Mary to be the mother of God. So Alexander of Alexandria uh, wrote in, in AD 324, more than a hundred years before the Council of Ephesus, after this, we receive the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, of which Jesus Christ, our Lord, became the first fruits, who bore a body in truth, not in semblance, derived from Mary, the mother of God, in the fullness of time, sojourning among the race for the remission of sins, who was crucified and died, yet for all this suffered no diminution of his Godhead. And from Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, from about 80 years or 90 years prior to the Council of Ephesus, Many, my beloved, are the true testimonies concerning Christ. The Father bears witness from heaven of his Son. The Holy Ghost bears witness, descending bodily in likeness of a dove. The archangel Gabriel bears witness, bringing good tidings to Mary. The Virgin Mother of God bears witness. The blessed place of the manger bears witness. Um, And uh, Athanasius, uh, this is a great one as well. And the angel on his appearance himself confesses that he has been sent by his Lord, as Gabriel confessed in the case of Zacharias, and also in the case of Mary, bearer of God. That's the, the Theotokos translation there. And then finally, this one from Gregory of Nazianzus. This one pulls no punches. <laughs> if anyone does not believe that Holy Mary is the mother of God, he is severed from the Godhead. And in fact, that's what the Council of Ephesus found uh, and the the canonical discipline that it imposed on Nestorius was to remove him from the Episcopal ministry. He could no longer be a bishop. Uh, they said, basically, you hold no title in the church anymore. Um, and that was what he suffered for advancing um, these these heretical ideas. There were, I think, around a dozen bishops that were allied to him. So unlike the Arian controversy where, and I think some scholars estimate that more than half of the church's bishops were actually Arians at the, you know, at the peak time of the Arian, um, the Arian heresy, it wasn't quite as, as widespread with Nestorius, but he took about a dozen bishops with him. I think um, one of them ended up sort of recanting and returning to the fold, but um, but there were a number of these guys who had very wrong ideas about the nature of the hypostatic union. And you know that, that leads me to my final point here, which is just that all great heresies are Christological heresies. And that alone in itself points us to the primacy of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. So when, when folks think that we focus too much on Mary, that we have too many Marian feast days, too many Marian solemnities, that we shouldn't celebrate the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God, we need to remember why we are celebrating Mary. We celebrate Mary because of what she tells us, what she shows us, what her pattern of life um, teaches us 
about Jesus Christ and what her fiat, what her yes to God uh, uh, opened the door to. So in this example, we've talked about how Mary as the mother of God is an important title because of what it tells us about the nature of Jesus. Uh, when we when you talk about the Annunciation, which is one of my favorite days in the entire church calendar, it's not the fact, I mean, we certainly celebrate Mary's fiat, yes, but it's not simply the fact that this very holy girl in Nazareth was open to God's call. It's not only that. It's also the fact that Gabriel showed up there in the first place because he was sent by God to announce the incarnation. We celebrate the Annunciation by celebrating Mary, yes, but also even more so because we celebrate a God who wants to come and be with us. We celebrate a God who is indeed Emmanuel, who is God with us. And when he does that, when God comes to be with us, he doesn't just come in a way that is distant, in a way that is far off, in a way that is mystical. He comes in a way that's certainly incomprehensible because the hypostatic union is is not fully uh, accessible to our finite minds. But he does so in a way, nonetheless, that although not fully comprehensible, is no less real. Uh, he does it in flesh, in blood, in a full union between the divine and human natures into one person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. That's why it's so important that we celebrate Mary as the mother of God. That's why St. Cyril of Alexandria took this so seriously against Nestorius and convinced Pope Celestine to let him lead a council to to define these things. That's why Gregory of Nazianzus, in that quote I just read a few minutes ago, says, if you don't believe that Holy Mary is the mother of God, you're severed from the Godhead. Because our faith proclaims that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God made man, God incarnate, who came here and dwelt among us. And our faith, by recourse to the Holy Eucharist, we have the abilities to be partakers of the divine nature as we consume his body and his blood, which is really, truly, and substantially present in the Blessed Eucharist. So all of it comes back to the centrality of Jesus Christ and the primacy of Jesus Christ over all creation. As St. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. And if we get anything wrong in our Christological understandings of who Jesus is, the rest of it will crumble, uh, which is exactly exactly what St. Cyril was saying to, to Nestorius. If you get this wrong, buddy, the entire truth of our redemption is shattered. So amen to that. Uh, uh, and thank you, God, for raising up saints like Cyril of Alexandria who could defend the right ideas against the wrong ones of people like Nestorius. Um, so there's a little bit of a history lesson for you on the mother of God, a happy solemnity to all of you. Really looking forward to more content on Credo Catholic in 2021. God bless you all. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed solemnity. Thank you.